would be that I, I would kind of a, I, w- I would take the first film and I would take the third we the third film which we have discussed previously back in the video days. and I would take the sixth film and kind of a combine those together so that it turns out that Michael Myers is this Druidian zombies killer cyborg. Like I, I, I see a lot of promise and huge potential in that direction. Yeah, and actually Donald Pleasance takes the curse in the end of this movie. If you go by the actual movie that wasn't botched up, the producer's cut, which isn't much better anyway. But he gets the curse. So I believe that means that Sam Loomis would be the next serial killer on the line. Yeah, that that would be the epic plot twist <laughs> the, at the end. Like, Laurie <laughs> Strode would kind of curl out, you know, being horribly, horribly injured throughout the movie. On her last strength, you know, she, she would go through the house, face Michael Myers once again, be like, say something like, I just want to see your face, you bastard, or something in that vein. And reach out for the mask, grip the mask, pull it off. <laughs> and underneath the mask, there would be the rotten corpse. Desiree dug it up from the grave. Oh. <laughs> like, like, like a CGI, Donald. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> no, no, but in all seriousness, I'm 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 fine with with them axing the sequels for the most part. I myself, I would draw the line on. I, I would count Halloween two to the canon and follow it from there before the series would go in fully goes into that druid nonsense and... Yeah, I can fully feel your sentiments on that. Uh, I was kind of shocked when they dropped Halloween 2 from the canon or the current timeline that they're now drawing. But at the same time, I could understand it in a sense because who who is going to survive the explosion in the hospital at the end of Halloween 2? But that, yeah. said, but that said, um, you talked about how Michael Myers maybe loses a little bit of his superpower creepiness or he loses his kill count, definitely, because now the hospital never happened. And I can see that argument. And I kind of thought that it's kind of weird that Halloween 2018 is now coming and Laurie Strode has been so prepared for the return of Michael Myers all these years. She has been waiting all those years that uh, uh, she can kill him. But if only the Halloween one happened, don't you think that that's getting a little bit overboard? I don't know. Of course, she's she suffered a lot of trauma, so it's hard to, hard to say. But <laughs> imagine that happening twice in the night. Of course, you would be out for revenge. The way I see it is that behind their decision to axe Halloween 2 from the from this new canon, canon is 
it comes kind of a down to point. Like you said, Michael Myers burning up at the end of Halloween 2. Spoilers for everyone listening to this. Yeah, Michael Myers reason. dies at the end of the fucking film. But also to get rid of the Laurie Strode's Michael's sister plot and get rid of the Sam Haim scene of Halloween 2. I, I would say those those three factors are the reason reasoning behind axing Halloween 2 from the canon. May I be the bitch and point out that it's actually pronounced Sawin, as every smartass wants to say, but continue. Yeah, I, I, I was trying to come up with something snappy to throw back at you, but, you know, <laughs> I, I just couldn't. I, I just couldn't. I'm starting to fail this episode already. I win. We... <laughs> yeah. So we disregard all the sequels. Um, yeah, uh, like, you, like you said, when it comes Laurie being so prepared for Michael in Halloween 2018, I can see that happening. I can buy that very easily. Simply from the events of Halloween 1 and through the concept of her being a young teenager who suffers a major trauma at, at a young age. So, of course, Laurie Strode could be ready or could have been waiting for years to face off Michael Myers again. What I find more hard to swallow, and th- this was my main crying point on our last discussion, is that I don't see how the rest of the world can kind of be expected to see Michael Myers as anything special. Yeah, and there's also the, the trailer, which kind of explains that they are not related anymore. It sounds a little pasted in and artificial, but at the same time, I realized that they needed to put in something that people won't be confused. And I think that's going to be their biggest obstacle here, because it's so deep in the culture consciousness that they are related. It's like the Luke, I'm your father thing. People know this. And and you can see it in the YouTube comments as well for, for the trailer. People are asking questions. Aren't they related? What's going on here? Where is this... What's the timeline like? Uh, where's this based on? And what happened and what didn't happen? The whole they are related thing, I have kind of a mixed feelings about it. And this is something that's going to come up again during this episode, since we are now covering the film that actually brings the whole, creates the whole plot point of them being siblings, but it's. I, I I'm not completely sure how great plot point that was to begin with. Yeah, I mean I I have kind of mixed feelings with it in Halloween two, and after Halloween two, the whole god whole franchise went the whole goddamn nine yards with the sibling angle to a point where 
pretty much the entire series is just Michael Myers trying to kill his family. Yeah, for me it gets a little bit laughable very very soon after Halloween too. There, there are there are moments. There are there are some good innovations that they managed to throw out from that concept. Yeah, I like the Jamie story, Halloween four, four or five. Not not so much six, but I like the character. I I like the character in four. There there is there is a specific point in Halloween four, which I think is the most clever and. Definitely mm. the best moment of that film. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. I've been harping about this previously. And, well, uh, from, from, uh, from Halloween 5 onwards, I think that when it comes to that one plot point, they may make huge disadvantage to it. Yeah, the story goes like, John Carpenter had a lot of motivational problems to write the script. You now talk about Halloween 2 or 4. Sorry, 2. Yeah. I am not aware how much Deborah Hill was a part of this script. You could take a guess that she maybe did the girl dialogue like she did it in the first Halloween. However... This was a hard one for John Carpenter. He had a six-pack of beer, apparently again but wiser, and he wrote it, wrote the script in, I believe, a few days. Well, this is one of those urban le- legends again. Few days here, few days there, and, but apparently so. And he was t- struggling to come up with something that would be original. He felt like he was just repeating all over again. The, Halloween 1 story and the elements of Halloween 1. So he saw pretty quickly that he needed something like a twist for the movie. Some uh, reveal, something to drive the plot forwards. And this is what happened during that beer. I, I can I, I can see that story holding through with Halloween 2 and, and with the sibling plotline yeah. that they introduce. I mean, it, it's not terrible. I, I'm not saying I hate it. Yeah, I, I've been toying with, with the idea of actually recutting myself the movie to my liking because, well, I'm not John Carpenter or Rick Rosenthal, obviously, but I've seen the movie enough times and I've seen the mistakes of the movie enough times that it would be interesting to cut your own version and see how it works. But now, again, when I saw Halloween 2 after probably a few years now, I again saw the movie differently. And when it came to the big reveal moment that they are related, I felt that, is there any other way to move this movie anywhere? I guess it was a necessary evil. It's hard to think of anything else. And I'm very curious how they will do something effective as far as revealings go in the new Halloween without this relation plot. Yeah, the plot, the plot rela- relation, it, it works in a sense that it gives Michael Myers 
a purpose. Or it gives his violence purpose. And it gives a reason for Michael to kind of get so locked in on Lori that he's willing to chase her through the hospital in Halloween too. And now with the bloodline being cut off in Halloween 2018, it also brings up the question that why should Michael Myers give a shit about Laurie Strode after all these years, since they are no longer longer related and there is no that no more that uh, well Michael Myers is trying to kill his other sister. I have a real response to that. Okay, it's, it's just as simple as Laurie Strode was the one that got away, so. Maybe it's not even his intention to go to Haddonfield to hunt for Laurie specifically. Maybe he's going house by house, just killing people randomly. And then he sees Laurie Strode somewhere and then he's like, ah, that's the one. I'm gonna get this girl now. But would you actually remember a person that well after all those years, after being locked up on a mental institution? Well, it's the supernatural edge vibe stuff. <laughs> but but isn't the supernatural edge vibe stuff precisely what they're trying to get rid of in Halloween 2018? I think he always has the supernatural edge, but people are maybe kept a little bit unsure of what this guy is underneath. Yeah. Um, yeah, you said about the whole transformation stuff in the last episode, and I don't know why why I didn't say this, but I gave it a little bit of thought, and I remember when I was watching this movie for the first couple of times, I remember watching the ending and all the shots of the houses and the breathing in the background, feeling like, okay, now now the guy is everywhere, and it feels like a transformation actually uh, a bit because I think it's suggesting that this guy is now kind of everywhere, like a literally kind of supernatural. I remember just thinking that when the movie ended. So I can totally see where you're coming from. Yeah, it's good. It's good to know that I'm not completely lost course, course yet here Yeah, with my Halloween th- theories. But Halloween 1 was supposed to be a one-off. And nobody was really interested of doing the sequel. But hey, money talks and beer talks. And John Carpenter and Deborah Hill wrote the new screenplay. Before they started even production for Halloween 2, John Carpenter wanted to do something else. And that something else was The Fog. But then... Even Yablans was traveling to Cannes Film Festival. He was in the plane and uh, Even Yablans met some producer and they were just talking this and that about Carpenter. And then this other producer said that, oh yeah, I'm doing with Carpenter The Fog and Halloween too. And Even Yablans was pissed off. He tried to call John Carpenter but couldn't get through. So he did the only thing that he could think of and sued the producer and John Carpenter And then they managed to get some kind of a compromise deal. 
where uh, Irina Blanc was now involved with Halloween too as well. Well, ma- ma- making the fork, I can definitely see why they had to make Halloween too to save John Carpenter's career because fuck that film. You don't like the fog? No, I, I think the fog is. It's very slow paced. I haven't seen it in probably 15 years. It's very uh, cheap. That that is the word you are looking for. Yeah, to me the whole fog concept was never menacing or or very scary, but I can feel the same kind of vibe a little bit as in Halloween, and the soundtrack is similar. Yeah, I. Uh, me personally, I like the fog as a concept, but where I it always went away with me is what the fog hold within it. Like like the fog in fog in in itself was kind of a mysterious and ominous, and uh, I would say the fog was the best part of the fog. And they later reveal that what the fog actually has in it is some dead zombie pirates is the moment where it dropped the ball. Yeah. Tommy Lee Wallace was first supposed to direct Halloween too. But then Tommy Lee Wallace read the script and he was less than enthused. Uh, TLW was like a production assistant and I suppose also a little bit of a producer for the first Halloween. Kind of an all-around guy. He did like five, six different things for the first one. And he was really enthusiastic about the Halloween 2 first, but then he read the script and he wasn't so enthusiastic because he thought that it was like the antithesis of the first movie where they added the blood and gore and In the Halloween 2 documentary, he says that the needle in the eye in Dr. Mixter's room was kind of the best way to describe the difference between Halloween 2 and Halloween 1. So he withdrew from the project and probably felt a little bit horrible because all of the people that were in Halloween 1 and Halloween 2, they were his friends. But as we know, history tells us that He went on to uh, direct Halloween 3. Unfortunately, it wasn't too successful. But yeah, uh, to kind of get the gears going, this week's drinks are Coca-Cola and a six-pack of beer, a la John Carpenter. Which one did you choose? Did you choose both or...? I I went with cola this time around. I was was thinking about the six-pack, but I kind of a cough up in the moment, trying to figure out that. Is it open six-pack or is it six-pack of Budweiser? And in the last moment, I made the final call and just played it safe and grabbed me some cola. Yeah, good choice. I'm not a big fan of the sugary drinks, so I took Coca-Cola Zero. So, sorry, Jimmy. The synopsis of Halloween 2, you want to try your... Skills in uh, synopsis this time? God, no. Okay. Halloween 2 is a direct continuation from Halloween 1. It starts minutes or seconds after the first Halloween ended, although it kind of modifies the ending because at the end, 
Sam Loomis is looking over the balcony and sees that Michael is gone in, and he's just standing there and the movie is over. But in Halloween 2, beginning, they go through the route that they didn't use for Halloween 1. For Halloween 1 ending, they shot two kind of different endings for Sam Loomis. In one take, Sam Loomis gives the look where he's surprised that Michael Myers is gone. And then they went with the second option that they had, which is where Sam Loomis looks like, I knew this would happen. But in Halloween 2, they disregard and discard that completely, and they go with the surprise. He goes to the front porch, and his eyes are almost popping out of their sockets, and he looks at the grass. Something magical has happened to the grass as well, because the place where Michael Myers was on the grass has apparently burned very much, or maybe he was there for three weeks, and this left some marks on the grass. Who knows? Anyway, Michael Myers continues his killing spree and gets information from the boombox boy in the town that Laurie Strode has been taken to Haddonfield Memorial Clinic. And people get chopped. Yeah, that was pretty good synopsis of Halloween too. Thank you, thank you. What's your history with this film? I already know that this is the first Halloween that you saw, as is the case for me as well. And I'm really happy with that. I have a lot of love for this movie. This due to Dean Cundy and probably mostly Dean Cundy and Laurie Strode and Donald Pleasance. Yeah, um, to me, you know, ever ever coming across Halloween 2 was, since we now are recapping our histories with the film, I mean, we already touched this one in the previous episode. But going to the matter more deeply, it was... I, I never quite understood or have understood why I watched Halloween 2 in the first place. The thing is that back when I was a little kid, I must not have been older than eight or nine. There, however, was this film rental store in Tampere, which our family used to regularly visit. And on on that store, there was this staff recommends shelf, which had these film classics like Godfather 2 and stuff like that. Movies that the store believed are pretty sure rentals or films that people would rent in mass. And I I noticed Halloween too on that shelf. And I I have never understood what caught my eye in Halloween too, because the box art of that film cassette was absolutely horrendous. Like one of the worst. Which one was it? What, what's in the cassette? The art had the front cover was nothing except the pumpkin from the opening intro, but the pumpkin was actually moved to the side so that so that you know only half of the pumpkin was visible. Uh. 
like yeah the edge of the front cover image kind yeah. of it, it cut the pumpkin from half of the pumpkin was cut yeah and on the back cover on the other hand there were three images from the film all of them extremely obscure of course the whole cover was a black and white copy so that did not help the images at all and the images themselves were from situations that did not tell you anything at all about the film like one image was michael meyer standing in a distance and the second image if i remember correctly was it just one of the nurses and i i don't even remember what the third image was but really these images that do nothing to sell the film to you so just some a few taken shots that are just haphazardly thrown at the back cover so that there is something to look at there and the flavor text was supposed to sell you the movie was written as such that it was only like three lines long and it did not tell you anything about the movie like it could hold you some information had you seen the first halloween did you watch the movie with somebody or by yourself somehow i i watched it by myself mm. Were you I, able I was, to rent it by yourself? God, no. I just, you know, after coming back to the film or that shell, film on the shelf repeatedly, because I most definitely did not pick it up automatically. I, I checked it out and read the back cover and thought that this does not tell me anything about the film. Everything looks stupid and put it back. But for some reason, the film still kind of intrigued me so that I kept returning to that shelf looking at Halloween 2 several times and it messed you up for life how how was your feeling after seeing the movie were you terrified or? i was actually excited right <laughs> <laughs> like okay tell me more and, yeah and with those words the cops are already <laughs> on their way <laughs> No, I, I, <clears throat> when I finally did snap the film off the shelf and ask my father to rent it, rent it for me, which he of course did because it was K-16 horror movie. So my father knew that there's nothing better to show, show a little kid. Uh <clears throat> Well, I, after see, after seeing the movie, I I remember being happily happily surprised by how good the movie was, and really really happy that I went with some kind of a lingering gut instinct that I should watch it, no matter how bad the covers are. And I, from that point onwards, I was really excited on. Halloween as a franchise. Yeah. My history is such that I was in Helsinki with my grandmother 
maybe spending the weekend there, something like that. It was an overnight stay. Halloween 2 happened to be on television. And my grandmother was always visibly angry when something violent came on TV. He would often just switch the channel immediately if something was not to her liking and if there were like screams of people or somebody getting stabbed or fighting, whatever the case might be. So in hindsight, in retrospect, it's surprising that we actually watched Halloween 2 for almost its entirety. I mean, we started watching it, well, this is of course now, now like 22 years ago when I watched it the first time with the grandmother, but if I'm correct, we started watching it around the scene when they're taking Laurie Strode out of the out of the Doyle's house and taking her to the ambulance. So we pretty much saw the whole movie. And if I also remember correctly, grandmother was trying to switch the station, but I was so excited about the film that I demanded that we continue watching. And so we did. And wow, I remember being so scared. And especially afterwards, I had trouble sleeping after it finished. And I had trouble sleeping a month or two after as well. And I remember being at my summer cottage and my other grandmother was there and I had to call her in to the room where I was sleeping to tell her that I'm too scared to sleep because I keep thinking about this guy probably in the hospital hunting for people. And I was scared of going asleep because I felt that I could have bad dreams about this. And of course, I never did when I was afraid of it. But but I remember seeing Halloween 2 nightmares. But this might have occurred when I was least expecting it. I remember in this one dream, I was hiding in some hospital closet in one of those rooms and trying to hide from Michael. I was terrified as hell. <laughs> Yeah, you may have traumatized yourself for the rest of your life, but at least you did piss off your grandma, mother. So, <laughs> was was worth it. <laughs> How many times do you think you have seen this? I'm not completely sure. Would it be something like fourteen times? Yeah. I'll, At this point. I'll go with the 40, like for Halloween one. Yeah. You you, you are the one, the one of us that is way more into this franchise and has is way more professional when it comes to Halloween. It made a huge impression on me. The Halloween 2, it's Still, it might be my favorite horror movie, I admit. There are problems with this film. On the whole, it's not always working so well. But there are certain moments that are absolutely terrifying. Yeah, that, that is true. And something that 
And when, when you compare this one to Halloween one, it's kind of a interesting watch because in a way Halloween two is the way how Halloween two picks up after Halloween one is incredible. Like the seamlessness that these two movie movies have. The fact that you can just watch them back to back or like you did, edit them together so that it's one continuous movie. Yeah. I That speaks volumes on the skill that was behind making of, making of Halloween 2. Yeah, and if you would change this and make Halloween 2 continue from some different night, maybe a year later, it would not give it as much legitimacy as it now enjoys because you can watch them back to back regardless of the fact that they are stylistically quite different movies apart from lighting and the terror aspect. No, if there would would be a timeline gap between Halloween 1 and Halloween 2, I would say Halloween 2 would not be as good movie as it is. Because a lot of the fun of Halloween 2 and the real trickery that happens in Halloween 2, filmmaking-wise, is based on on the fact that it picks picks up immediately after the first one ends. It might have been also one of the first movies that had that did something like this. And back in those days, sequels were not such a expected thing as they are now. Yeah, I would even throw in the argument that Halloween 2 still is one of the few extremely rare cases that actually picks up so quickly after the previous film. Yeah. John Carpenter didn't want to direct this film. John Carpenter had the same agent as someone called Rick Rosenthal. And one day Carpenter then decided to call Rosenthal and asked if Rosenthal would be able to and wanting to do H2. So it was Carpenter's choice and it was approved by one of the producers, Dino De Laurenti. Uh, Rosenthal was approached because somebody had watched his short film and they were impressed by its quality. So they decided to choose Rick Rosenthal. When you look at his career, he's mostly known for TV films or TV productions, TV series. After Halloween Resurrection, I believe he hasn't been doing too many feature films. <laughs> I, I I would say that no one from Halloween Resurrection has made that many films after after making Resurrection. Yeah, who is the, that fashion chick in Halloween Resurrection again? Tyra Banks. I hope I I wish she would have also disappeared after this. Well, she very much actually did disappear after. Resurrection. So much she, for resurrection. Yeah, 
so much for resurrection. The only thing she was able to resurrect after that one was that, what was that, uh, runaway show? How that reality TV show that ran for, what, 57 seasons and three movies, or how long was it? America's Next Top Memorial. Yeah. That, that, that it was. Yeah. Yeah, that, that show that never stopped airing. Yeah, she was overconfident. Yeah, I'm much more forgiving Tyra for Halloween Resurrection. Uh, I always kind of tipped my... I never could stand America's Next Top Model as a show or as a format, but I could tip my hat to Tyra for actually being as honky as she was in the show. Yeah. Okay. They used apparently a couple of hospitals for Halloween too. I thought they had only one, but apparently there were at least two hospitals. Uh, One of them, I believe, was in Pasadena. Both of them are in California, in any case. In one of the hospitals, probably the one hospital that they at least could use completely because it was unused, they had some trouble with the planes there. The planes would always fly over the hospital and they couldn't film a scene due to sound troubles. So it could it could be just a continuous stream for 15 minutes of listening to planes, which would wear the actors out when they were already so prepped up for the next scene. But they got the job done. And we didn't talk about Nick Castle in the last episode somehow at all. So Nick Castle was the first guy that played Michael Myers. He was just told by Carpenter to just walk, just walk, Nick, from place A to place B. And that's all the instructions that he ever got. But uh, regardless, he his mannerisms, he, he gave some kind of character to Michael Myers in the first one, regardless of that. Perhaps a certain kind of cat-like quality in his walking, how he's kind of gliding when he's walking. It looks like a very smooth, especially when he's following Laurie right after when he first stabs her. Yeah, or or the way how he just glides through the wardrobe closet door at the end of the film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's Tommy Lee Wallace that's breaking the closet there. There are actually five five or six actors who played Michael Myers in Halloween one. Let me see. There's there's one stunt actor that fell off the balcony. There's Nick Castle. There's Deborah Hill. There's Tommy Lee Wallace. Young Michael Myers. I'm sorry, I forget your name. Yeah, and you know, all of them could have been cut, or all of the all of the those, or all the paychecks could have been cut if John Carpenter would just have cast Deborah Hill as Michael Myers, stick to that, and then pushed her out of the balcony. Like, like it, it, it would have, you would have saved Nick Casser's paycheck. You would have saved the stuntman's paycheck. 
That that's not how you finance movies. Not not to be evil for short people. I'm a very short person myself, but Deborah Hill would have been by far the shortest Michael Myers ever. Maybe that wouldn't have been so menacing. In this movie, Michael Myers is portrayed completely by stunt coordinator and stuntman Dick Warlock. And uh, Deborah Hill called him and asked him to join as a stunt coordinator. He went to the offices, he saw a mask on the table, then he went through a corridor to meet Rick Rosenthal, and he put on the mask before he went in, and Rosenthal was asking, who the hell are you? And then he was laughing and he took the mask off and said uh, later on that, is there any reason that I can't play this guy? And Rosenthal was like, I don't see why not. If Deborah Hill also approves, I don't see why not. And then he was the new Michael Myers. I've never heard anyone really ask why Nick Castle wasn't in this movie as well. I'm guessing the only only reason is that they wanted somebody who would be actually a stunt guy. So they would be able to do all these things with just one guy and probably would simplify a lot of things. Yeah, or may, maybe, you know, you can actually shoot more film if you save some paychecks by not having five different actors to play one dude whose major job is to walk from one place to the other yeah. and not say a goddamn line. Yep. And the same instructions continued for in Halloween too. Just walk, Dick. Just walk. Something to that effect. Deborah Hill said that she didn't like the walking of Dick Warlock, that he never really nailed it down. I beg to differ on that. And Dick Warlock said in another interview, is as a response to that, that Deborah Hill never instructed him to walk differently. She was always on the set looking how things are going. She never said anything. So, yeah. But as far as I'm concerned, Dick Warlock is, um, all things considered, he's my favorite Michael Myers. There are moments that maybe I'm not just a, just a big fan of, but on the whole, I like his portrayal the most. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Especially how, in many cases with these slasher movie villains, there is that one actor, most typically the first one to play that role that gets kind of a, gets this podium as the one, as, as, the, as the actor who really nailed it and who is then kind of a, to whom every other actor doing the same role is then compared to. Kind of, kind of like Kane Hodder is to, you know, Jason Voorhees or Jackie R. Haley is to Freddy Krueger. What? Earl Haley? <laughs> yeah. Are you ch- <laughs> are you checking are you checking that I'm awake? <laughs> uh, I, I I've never even heard about this Robert England guy. <laughs> Blasphemy. <laughs> There's a couple of uh, scenes that John Carpenter came to reshoot 
as they felt that something was missing and they needed to up the ante as far as the violence goes. In fact, Rosenthal wanted to do very much stylistically the same movie as Halloween 1. But John Carpenter felt the pressure from Friday the 13th and other successful slasher movies that the audience doesn't want the Halloween 1978 all over again. And they needed to put some more gore and violence onto the screen, like on-screen violence and a lot of blood. That is very much featured here. Is it? Is it really? Because I, I, I would make the goddamn argument here that it, when it comes to violence, it is only a slightly, a slightly more violent than Halloween one. When did you actually watch this movie the last time? Well, I mean, there are what from from the from the actual killings, only two are actually blood. Uh, truly bloody like like the throat cuttings themselves are the, it is a small slither of blood that actually goes through the neck well if you compare these movies back to back there is the scene that you cannot miss where apparently about 220 liters of fake blood are on the hospital floor and then there is the throat cutting and another throat cutting in the beginning of the movie. The marshal and this young lady. Yeah, but yo, know, to, to come back, to come back to that million gallons of blood on the floor scene, that that one definitely is bloody. But I'm I would hesitate to call it that violent as a scene. If something, I would say that that's the most artistic scene in either of the two Halloween films and overall in this in, in this franchise. I feel scenes like these are slightly cheapening Halloween too. Because I, I thought it was unnecessary, the added blood, because first of all, it's not realistic in the slightest. There's also the stabbing of some Loomis to the stomach and we see the scalpel that is full of blood. Which, yeah, might, but... which might be the case, though, but it's over the top. And then the uh, blood from the eye holes of Michael. Which, once again, is only a couple of drops. And when it comes to stepping, the, uh, stepping Loomis, there, you don't really even see the stepping. Or, or you, yeah. see, you see the stepping ha- to happen. But because yeah. Loomis is covered by glow, clothes, you only see, you know, the scalpel going into this, you know, a pack of clothes, and then the Loomis staggers backwards. Like if if we if we wanna really have a conversation about about violence and added cruelty in Halloween too, I would make the argument that there is only one scene which we can truly look at, and that is the Hubbard tank scene, when Michael boils that one nurse whose name escapes me at the moment at the hydrothermia treatment tank. Karen. Yeah, Karen. Like, that is violent, and that is nasty, with all, all the skin peeling off her face. 
as she's repeatedly pushed into boiling water. But I, I would make the argument that that's what you have, have going for you. That's a fascinating scene in the sense that it's kind of completely unnecessary and also very necessary at the same time. These characters are not entirely interesting, you could argue, and they're not contributing much to the overall plot, but it's just one kill in the middle of the movie. But that being said, it's one of the clearly the most one of the most memorable scenes in the movie and the most memorable kill, you could say. Yeah, in that sense, Halloween 2 is the movie where Halloween really becomes a slasher franchise. Yeah, so there you cannot really argue otherwise that you you have to admit that even if you belong to either camp, the Halloween suggested violence or the Halloween to gore on-screen violence, you can see the difference there clear as day, stylistically. Yeah, and you can see it in, especially, like, like you said, in the other characters in this film. Halloween one went a long way to make sure that every character in the movie, except one, but I'm coming back to this later on, every character has screen time and has some stuff to do in Halloween one before they are killed. Halloween two, on the other hand, does bring up several characters who you actually don't learn anything about and who you can clearly see that they are there just to be killed. And that's where I've run into this argument while doing my research for Halloween 2 that people or some people tend to throw around the statement that Halloween was a horror movie and Halloween 2 is a slasher movie. And I, I'm a little bit mixed on that, but I, I kind of, I'm, I, I'm in both camps when it comes to that question. Was, was Halloween, was the original horror movie or was it a slasher movie? But Halloween 2 definitely is a slasher movie. Yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah. Every time I hear the slasher movie connected to Halloween 1, I'm raising my eyebrows a bit because it's entirely different to the on-screen goriness of Friday the 13th and all the copycats and Halloween 2. Yeah, I myself, like I said, I'm I'm still on a fence when it, com- when it comes to the question of violence in Halloween 2. But the way how the characters are treated in Halloween to in, in now in, now in the sense that how much screen time and how much much personality every character gets in that sense I I, I agree that there is no kind of a defending of Halloween 2 from the argument that Halloween 2 is a slasher movie yeah. I mean the the only exception the only exception and there lies exception where Halloween 2 outdoes Halloween 1 character-wise. And there is that moment, and there is that character, but the only character where this happens is 
pen dreamer. Because goddammit, it's not Halloween too the best way of use your pen dreamer. Yeah, it's nice that they are making all these connections with the first movie. All these kind of throwaway or not so important characters are more fleshed out, especially in the beginning of Halloween 2. Even Annie or Nancy Kais came to play the corpse of Annie just to make these little nice connections to make it feel like uh, that, that they are more connected. That is something that I would say is crucial for the experience of Halloween 2. And something that is extremely remarkable from everyone involved in the first two Halloween films. Yeah. Like like that kind of a dedication that you can get all these actors back for the second one. And regardless of the added on-screen violence, blood and gore and destroying heads and chopping stuff up, it still feels stylistically like a continuation because there are many key factors. Of course, there's Dean Candy, who has expertly given beautiful cinematography for this movie. It was a fun challenge for him to light all these dark corridors and all these reflections to Meyer's mask near the end of the movie, like the red light that probably everybody remembers when Michael Myers continues his chase towards Laurie. And there is this red light coming from somewhere, and it's one of the freakiest sequences in the movie. And you never see this kind of lighting ever again in the series. You see you see something in Halloween 3. It also feels like a stylistic continuation. But everything changes when the whole core group changes in Halloween 4. So there's delighting in the cinematography in general. I suppose the same actors that tie it together. And, and the mask. The mask is incredibly important. And it is the same mask that they used in the first one. I always thought that it was a new mask that they use, use here because it looks quite different. But it's in fact the same mask which Deborah Hill kept in a shoebox. Deborah Hill was a big chain smoker, so it may look a little bit more yellow. And maybe the coloring has kind of weird down. And the shape of Dick Warlock's face is different to Nick Castle's, so maybe the mask looks a little bit more stretched. And I would argue that it looks hell of a lot creepier in this film for some reason. Not sure why, but it's brilliant. It's... Uh, it's contributing so much to the movie. When you look at movies like Halloween 4, it's a, it's a fucking joke. And I still can't, for the life of me, understand why they didn't just contact Dick Warlock. Like, hey, Dick, maybe you can borrow us this mask so we can actually do this movie. But they decided to do some shit show of a mask themselves. I will never understand that. I will never understand why, in some cases, people don't make the logical decisions in movie making. Pick up the phone and get the mask. It's that simple. I should add that, of course, it's possible that during the making of Halloween 4, there were legal problems to have the Captain Kirk-looking mask. So maybe they were forced to make it appear a little bit different. Who knows? 
How do you feel about the John Carpenter scenes that he reshot to add kind of the atmosphere? Uh, one of the scenes is the boombox boy scene. Second is apparently when Michael is burning at the end of the movie on the floor. And then there is the uh, beginning girl killed who's on the phone. Well, what do you think about that? Did it add anything to you? For me, the girl getting killed in the start of the movie, it doesn't add really anything. Of course, it's it looks very Carpenterian. It's shot well, it's creepy, but for the plot, it's not contributing anything. It's not like, though, that it's not like horror movies are all, always giving you any interesting plot developments. So it's not a big deal. I like it, but perhaps it's weird that Michael stops by in this house when he should be getting out of the area since the police are in the vicinity. Yeah, to me, the John Carpenter scenes are kind of a mixed bag. I'm I'm with you on the girl getting killed at the beginning of the film. I I can see why it was added there. You know, you have you have to start with a bang your movie, but there is also kind of this disconnect that I get following from that opening point of view shot and following Michael's actions through it because at the very beginning of the movie, Michael visits the old couple's house where he only steals the kitchen knife, leaving the couple alone which I think is quite bloody well done scene. Yeah. I, I I really like the point of view scenes in Halloween too. And I did like a lot in that old couple scene how it mostly is POV shots. And then all of a sudden it switches back into a traditional shot showing showing clearly Michael behind behind you know the old lady and then just walking away yeah i wonder if coca cola was a sponsor for this movie in the elroyd house you can see a coca cola six pack on the table i i missed so much coca cola on this <laughs> movie <laughs> but yeah after that you after that scene and since since Michael is so nonviolent at the very beginning of the film that's tied back to back with the later scene where he just ends up attacking some random teenager or the old couple's neighbor like I said I can see the mechanics there but I really don't get the feel that it adds that much to the film. With with the boombox boy, in my opinion, as a scene, it really does not add anything to the film, except the fact that, if I remember correctly, that is how Michael learns that Lori has been taken to the hospital. Yeah, it begins actually when Karen and her friend are walking to the car and then Karen is complaining that, oh, Darcy, I don't have time to take you home, like she promised. It also seems like a very useless scene, 
But then when you kind of think about it, I also like it because it gives you more of this small town vibe and it also introduces the nurse before she goes to the hospital setting, which kind of adds some character to her, I believe. Unlike all the other characters, maybe Karen is the most, the best introduced character of the new characters. I don't know. I, to me, they... Or maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe Karen... Karen at least gets most scenes that define her as a character. But I don't particularly like the new characters. And I'm not sure if the audience is meant to like them that much either. Because, okay, let's see. Karen is introduced as somebody who is a little bit lazy, out of schedule, doesn't pay attention to the kids in the hospital. And she also goes to the therapy room with Bud during her shift. Which, of course, if you believe in this horror movie logic, how things work, she gets killed. Also, Bud gets killed because he's definitely an irritating character in this movie believes to be this kind of a ladies' man. But we're given the idea that he's kind of a annoying, uncaring person. And then we have Janet. Janet is maybe the least fleshed out character of the hospital staff. I don't know really anything about her. And then there is the Mrs. Alves that is running the show. Mrs. Alves is memorable, even though Nothing is really given to her to do, except to act like a tough boss. But yeah, at the same time, you know, I have no complaints about the new characters either. It, I think they were doing the best that they could under the circumstances. Maybe they could have fleshed out, or maybe they could have given more screen time to Laurie. She's sedated so much that there's nothing for her to do. Yeah, I, I'm not as hard on the new characters as you are. I'm, I'm not hard on them. Okay. Um, I suppose this is the best we can get. I have no problem with the characters. They're okay. Yeah, because I, I, I got a lot out of Mrs. Alves. And you even left off, you know, the most prominent characters of the film, those being the fat security guard and the drunken doctor, who yeah. has just come off back from the country club. And he was in the same country club as Laurie Strode's parents, right? What the hell is with the parents in this whole franchise all the time? Nobody can get in touch with them, and they're never there when they're needed during Halloween night. They're always away. <laughs> yeah, go figure. But, but, you know, at least the doctor came back. Yeah, at least. Yeah, drunk yeah. as a mule, but showed some backbone and good character and returned to do his job where it would actually be extremely important for him to be sober and he's actually doing more harm than good of being at the hospital premises while under influence. Oh, Laurie. Hi there. Hi there. I'm gonna just 
stick you this stuff which you obviously don't want, but just just take it. And I'm and going then, to operate on your shoulder. Yeah, I'm, I'm going totally to drunk. operate your shoulder. Prepare the, the operation theater. In the TV version, there's added scenes with Dr. Mixter. He's in the room of Laurie Strode saying something like, yeah, it happened to go pretty well, actually. And he's talking like he's uber drunk. And uh, Mrs. Alves is just rolling her eyes like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> But since you mentioned Laurie Strode not being that much in the film, that is somewhat of a minus in in the movie of and in and the way how movie kind of a handles Laurie is there there is a lot of missed opportunities in there like as you said most of the film Laurie is passed out and is not even in the movie during the final stretch when she finally you know wakes up from the drug and uh, starts to be active in the film half of the time or half of those scenes she's a quite big of a dumbass actually why well you, the, you, the, there is like I, I can meet Laurie halfway through here like you you just struck off some uh, medical drugs that have sedated you. So, of course, walking, maybe, can be a bit tricky for you. But then again, she does manage to walk inside the hospital. And once she's outside of the hospital, she gets into the car. Mm -hmm. well, once that goes haywire and she exits the car, well... At that point, you know, she quickly forgets how to walk. It's full-on crawling. Then she sees how Loomis mm -hmm. pulls into the hospital yard and it's like, what is screaming? How do you scream? <laughs> and, and then uh, the door shuts and after that, yeah, the full yeah. scream. Yeah, they, they go inside. And after that, you know, she once again remembers remembers how to walk and how to scream and how, how to make noise, how to bang hospital doors so that they can come and get her inside in the last possible minute. It's very reminiscent of the first Halloween for me that she goes to the car. It reminds me of the closet scene. And after this, she's banging the door like in the original. And of course, Loomis comes then and saves the day again. Quite good call, actually. That, that, mm. That's a point of view I've missed myself. And I believe shots him six times or five times, not sure. Yeah, six times. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, and the bastard still doesn't go down. And yeah, then, then you have the idiot Mar... Uh, was it Marshall? Or yeah. Sorry, Get yeah. away from him. Yeah, get away from him. But it stopped breathing. Yeah. Classical stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of awesome lines from Donald Pleasance. He's getting even more creepy 
in this film. There's talk about the wake and Samhain isn't evil spirits, goblins, ghosts or witches. It's the unconscious mind. Yeah. And, you know, you you gotta, you just have to give a lot of love for Donald Pleasance. One of a kind character. I really well, like him. Yeah. And an actor that really could pull off the... It really did help selling the whole it's the same night still angle of of Halloween too. You you can kind of see him being even being more tired in Halloween too. Like he has just you know stayed up the whole twenty four hours, and now the sleep deprivation is finally creeping up up on him. But yeah, thank goodness for Irvinia Blanche for suggesting to John Carpenter to have Donald Pleasance in this after. Christopher Lee and others didn't want to take on the role. Imagine if it was Christopher Lee, this would be just yet another kind of Christopher Lee movie. Yeah. Well, later Christopher Lee said that it was the biggest mistake of his career to not take on the role of Sam Loomis. I can see that happening. It's total pleasant for me. And you could argue that Donald Pleasance is the only saving grace of some of the sequels that come later. Basically, Halloween as a franchise is a testament of Donald Pleasance's acting skills. Yeah, I always wondered why is he so why is he so into being in these terrible films? But he continued on to Halloween Six. Maybe he didn't have anything better to do at that point. And surely enough, this was one of the the roles that he is most known for. So somewhere in the annals of film history, there has to be, you know, some kind of evidence that about the one time when Donald Pleasance took, took a, some kind of a holiday trip to Thailand and got into a huge debt which which forced forced him, you know, to do all, all these Halloween movies <laughs> and stick with the franchise to the end, or or then it's it's just that one of a kind commitment to something you start and that dedication to try to keep keep the franchise even somewhat afloat. Because that's what Donald Pleasance in the end ends up doing in the franchise, being the one saving grace of some of these entries. Yeah. And somebody asked him on one of the sets of Halloween or somewhere that, uh, why do you keep making this movie? Why do you keep making Halloween perpetually? And he said... Uh, and Donald Pleasance looked him straight in the eye and said... Because of the opiates, my son. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said that, and then he proceeded to say that, oh, I'm not going to do this forever. I'm, I'm going to stop at 22. So he definitely had a soft spot for the role. I, I, I can see seeing soft spot for Samuel Loomis as a, as a character. There is a lot of 
a lot of great ingredients in in Loomis. Yeah. But still, still just going going through some of the Halloween movies. Just you know, I mean, he he must have you know. At, at the later end of the franchise, I believe that it just—it has to be—it has—it must have gone through so that at the morning, Pleasance arrives at the film set and then he does his lines, does his job, then they stop filming, and immediately after that moment, you know, Pleasance just opens a bottle of vodka and he's drunk and for the rest of the day. It's surprising that he still returned after the shit show of Halloween Five. Yeah, <laughs> and I would have, I would give everything I have, which at the moment is fifty euros, for the privilege of being fly in the wall when Donald Pleasance has stopped, or the shootings for Halloween Five have stopped, and Donald Pleasance is in his home. Go, going through the reviews of Halloween 5, and the moment that the, the FedEx guy rings the doorbell and gives him the package which holds the script for Halloween 6. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that, that, is, that is one of the great mysteries of history, that <laughs> what did Donald Pleasance think at the moment when he read the script for Halloween 6? Yeah... And that was his last movie, sadly. He passed away in 95, before the movie was released. They also had to do some, at least some reshoots, and they had to use a body double for that, since he was gone. But uh, greatly missed his character. Really uh, memorable. I've seen some couple of other of his films, let me just quickly see what that was. I really enjoyed it. Uh, the Great Escape from 1963. It's an adventure drama movie where a group of English people escape from a prison camp of Nazi Germany. Yeah, I, I do know The Great Escape. I have it in my own collections as well. Yeah. A classic, a, a true classic of, of its time. Extremely great example of a good ensemble cast. Like there, there is a lot of great actors. And there's another one that I've still, yet, I still haven't watched, but it's the one that got... Uh, Donald Pleasance into the whole Halloween after Jablans had seen uh, Will Penny was the movie that Jablans saw and suggested Donald Pleasance to, for the role in 1978. Please continue. There is a lot of sympathy that I have for Donald Pleasance in the sense that uh, as someone who also has who knows Pleasance's career Outside, outside of Halloween franchise. I mean, he is, he's an actor who did work with Dario Argento and George Lucas 
making a role in Lucas's first film, the student project, the uh, the uh, VHX one one three eight. Yeah, I I guess that was it. that was it. Okay. Yeah, but however, the first film George Lucas ever did, like Don Pleasance was in that. He worked with Roman Polanski of all goddamn people. So in that sense, a terrific career behind him. A really established actor. And then what what ends up being your last film? Halloween 6. Like, yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's so sad. I'm just looking at his contributions to cinema and the list is long as hell. Like there's maybe 200 movies here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then being, I, I I don't say that being remembered or being most remembered as Samuel Loomis is a bad thing. No, he But was always great. He was he, always great. The movies just sucked. Yeah. And, you know, being remembered from Halloween one and two is not a bad thing. But being remembered from the rest of the franchise... Like like that being your legacy. Halloween four, five, and six being part of your legacy, and and not the Roman Polanski film. Yeah, like, like there there's you know the fairness in universe for you. We can choose our last films. What can you do? But if you look at the whole career as a whole, I think it doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I I hope not. I hope not. I hope that to his to his last days, Donald Pleasance could look at his career and his legacy and feel pride for what he did. Yeah, hey, we can look at it this way. At least he died before Halloween Six was out, which is probably for the best. Yeah, and well, he he died before Halloween Homecoming, so there is that. Had he been some kind of eternal vampire, most likely he would have also ended up in Homecoming and... Human Resurrection. Yeah, what was that? Yeah, Homecoming, that was the working title for Resurrection. Yeah. Yep. Halloween Resurrection, or Homecoming as we know it. Mm-hmm. In the academic circles. Yeah, but to get all the way back to the boombox boy scene. Uh, the boombox yeah, not, yeah. not, not, not so that we took any side roads here. <laughs> all of a sudden. Uh, I went through the last episode and marked all the parts that we were discussing and we would go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. <laughs> but I kind of like it. And it doesn't matter. Hey, we go to side tensions every time. Yes, yes, the boombox boy. See, yeah. which, which we have been talking all this time. Yeah, Lance Warlock plays the boombox boy. He's the son of Dick Warlock. Okay. And if, if I'm not mistaken, there's also another son of Warlocks somewhere doing something, but memory escapes me. Then there is uh, the first movie of certain someone that I didn't know anything about before I started researching this stuff. There's this guy called uh, Dana Thomas Carby, 
He's apparently an American stand-up comedian and an actor, quite famous also. He was in Saturday Night Live for, from 1986 to 1993. He's the guy with the cap on his, on his head. He's apparently the camera guy for the, the television station that is featured uh, in the beginning of the movie when Laurie Strode is taken with the stretches to the hospital and at the end of the movie when she gets back to the ambulance. Do you know anything about this person? It's, uh, this is so American trivia, I suppose, that I have no idea of this guy. Dana Carvey, a guy. Yeah, 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 I know Dana Carvey, motherfucker. Oh. I completely missed, you know, that he was in Halloween too. But there we have another, you know, class- classical actor and a man of theatrical arts in Dana Carvey. Oh. No, known, no, known for such of a powerhouse movies as Ma- The Master of Disguise, which is the best comedy ever come out of United States. Oh, maybe we should watch it then. We most definitely should not watch that shit show. <laughs> okay. Like, it's, 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 oh, it's, God, it's not good movie. It's absolutely terrible. I see. You you can you can watch a five minute YouTube clip if you want, and that's that's enough. You want to kill yourself, even mm. after that. Not not to mention, you know, watching the whole hour and twenty minutes that it takes to sit. But in order not to turn this into a character assassination against Carvey, uh, he did be the second lead in the Wayne's World films. If you have seen those, the early Michael Myers, uh, Mike Myers comedies. Basically, these two slackers who end up in these wacky and adventures. If you miss them back in their heyday, or if you are not some creepy film snob, who find, found Mike Myers back uh, when the Austin Powers craze was going on and then, you know, just to be pretentious, had the urgent need to catch up with Myers's uh, previous work just to see some kind of a career evolution up to the Austin Powers films. In that sense, if those mm-hmm. two cases don't hold true to you, then... Most likely you have not or do not know Wayne's World films because they, they were huge in their time and then probably forgotten pretty prominently after that. They are still holding cult status as comedy films, or at least the first one is. The second got a little bit harder treatment. Yeah, when you say Mike Myers, that only... Reminds me of Austin Powers or Halloween Resurrection when that rapper, what's his name? Dead Meat. Oh, oh. No. Do you mean the character MC? Oh, please tap my face immediately. At the end, end of the film, it's Buster Rhymes who calls Michael as Mikey. 
feeling a little crispy over there, Mikey. A little chicken fried, motherfucker. Yeah, we're going to get to all of this wonderful dialogue soon enough. Ah, oh, Oscar-worthy performances. Anyway, oh God, where were we? Donald Pleasance, Michael Myers, and Mike Myers, which brings me to James Bond. And again, you only live twice. How familiar are we, you with the James Bond series? Have you seen Donald Pleasance's performance as Blofeld? I was sick through the entire franchise. Right. Something like maybe maybe three times because James Bond movies are something that are constantly repeated in TV in Finland. Yeah. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, talk, it, talk about canon for their entertainment. Yeah, they, they have been doing it too much. It's one of my favorite movie series as, as well. If you're up for the incredible task, we could go through those movies as well. It will take some time, like half a year, but maybe later. Yeah, how, how about we meet in hell first? Like, <laughs> really? Well, well I, I, I'm not saying no, but... Uh, first of all, the entire franchise is, is long as hell. Yeah, uh, and yeah. second of all, second of all, it it holds some true masterpieces of cinema. There, there are some of the most classical moments in filmmaking history. For example, the Moonraker, which I most definitely yeah wanna see again. <coughs> Or, or that shadow, James Bond, the never say never. Never, never say never. Uh, oh my God! Now, now that you you not did not mention it, but brought up the James Bond themes, hearing die another day theme song once again. Yeah, Freud. Where were we again? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The boombox boy. Uh. The boombox boy. <laughs> right. I think we covered pretty well the John Carpenter scenes and what we think about them. Let's wrap that up. Okay. They were well shot. They didn't contribute that much plot-wise, but I also find them some of the most memorable moments, funnily enough, in Halloween too. So, no... No objection, oh, no objections. But I can imagine that Rick Rosenthal was pretty pissed when he was asked to come to direct this movie. But of course, he understands that he's now part of the franchise or series. So he has to make some amends to like 557 different producers and John Carpenter and Deborah Hill and whoever the hell was kind of pulling the strings uh, behind the scenes. Yeah, the last of the uh, John Carpenter scenes, the shots of burning Michael Myers are, for me, w- one of those images that always comes to my mind when I think about Halloween 2. Mm. And there, there I would say, you know, 
I, I have no uh, objection against the uh, John Carpenter scenes being in the film and most definitely not against the shots of Michael Myers burning on the hospital floor. Hey, I always think, uh, I also think that the razor blade kid scene was by John Carpenter. That I can do without. It's stupid. They can skip that. It's going to end, no, end no, up. No, no, no. They most definitely can't skip that one. They must. No, no. Throw it to the trash. You you are talking about the best scene in the film. But it's, again, it's not contributing anything. It's just adding the gore factor and nonsensicalness. No, it, it's it's saying a ton. Like, like it's the most... It, it's the most talkative scene in the film. Like, if you're going to do, do the favorite scenes segment in this episode, I I'm already calling... More already calling it now. The kid with the razor blade in his mouth. You're just, Best scene in the film. You're just trying to push my buttons or something. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm actually I'm actually you know be, being sincere here. Since we got into this conversation, we might as well talk about the scenes that I would cut from the film. It's going to be Carrie's cutting room floor. New new section for our podcast. Yeah, the place where great movies and great scenes go to die. Yes. So first, I would have shortened the scene of Mr. Garrett somehow. I realized that it's one of the scariest scenes of the movie, perhaps for many. And it's well lit. It's dark as hell. It's atmospheric. But it's also around the middle point of the movie, I believe. And it's the point where people kind of start to get maybe kind of tired of the the rhythm is kind of getting loose around this moment in the middle of the film there's places where it's not as fit as in other parts of the movie how it would be cut i'm not entirely sure but it's definitely running too long next one would be the dream scene because of course i would try to cut the whole family relationship from this movie. So I would cut the dream scene. It's silly anyway. And if you watch the TV version, it's even sillier because the Jamie Lee Curtis's, or it's not even Jamie Lee Curtis, by the way. So somebody is talking with this high-pitched voice. It could be even a guy who's trying to play, I guess, five-year-old Laurie Strode. Michael, please don't be angry with me. I'm your sister. Please don't hurt me. Imagine if that this was in the theatrical cut. There's a lot of complete nonsense in the TV version. I can't believe what what they were actually thinking in some places. Third one, a school-breaking scene. It's one of the silliest in the film. First of all, they are assuming that Michael Myers actually has time to break into all of these places during the same night. He goes to school and he puts a knife on the table to hit the sister in the drawing and then there's Sam Hain with blood written on the chalkboard. But there again, you need that scene to explain to the audience why Michael Myers no longer has a kitchen knife when he's at the hospital and why he has to use needles to stab people. Oh yeah, that would be a huge plot problem, yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, can you just think about all the IMDb reviews after that? 
yes, like it gives a hu- totally new dimension to Michael Myers' character. Just imagine if this was this if this was happening on screen. Michael breaking into the school, then putting the knife on the table, then writing some shit on the chalkboard. Jesus Christ, why? Because you know it, it would showcase kind of a see Michael's inner battle with, with himself. Him kind of a trying to you know let go of the violent impulses and that path of destruction that he is actually going through in the films and instead of that kind of a, to bring out his more sensitive side and his aspirations as a poet ah yeah i mean michael is a tragic figure here he he wants to be a poet but there is so much just something anger in him that you know he just He just can't give up the violence. Imagine all of those chalkboard chalks. He has all of them to use there, but instead he decides to use blood for it. Well, my Michael is, you know, still at the age of being extremely emo. Yeah, twenty one, perhaps. Yeah, maybe he listened a lot of Cure when he was in the asylum. <laughs> And the fourth scene, fourth scene that I would cut is the car scene where Marion obviously tells about the sealed file. And then I would cut the slipping on blood. The, the sli- slipping on blood is a classic. It's stupid. Everybody's it, like, ev- oh my God, face bombing when they see that in my, in my Night of the Horror events. Every movie can be enhanced by having a character slip on blood. I mean, if you, if you don't believe me on this, and I can completely, you know, forgive you for not taking my word on this, but how how could you ever go against, you know, some of the heavyweights of the industry who agree with me on this point? Like, for example, Ridley Scott, who pulls the exact same stunt in Alien Covenant. Oh, I have already forgotten about that Oscar-worthy experience. <laughs> yeah, that, that one moment when when you finally can just sit back and relax watching the film, knowing that... <laughs> no offense, Ridley Scott, but this movie doesn't exist for me in the franchise. Yeah, it's one of those moments where you clearly see that, you know, Ridley Scott's should finally just retire. Like, like if if it wasn't obvious to you when that dumb fuckery around Blade Runner's blood points started, you know, Alien Covenant is fi- finally the icing on the cake. I'm still waiting on Gladiator 2, where they will explain the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> About... The literature about this movie. Well, there's a novelization by Jack Martin. Again, it's really expensive. Again, it's out of print. Some kind of collector's item. People say it's really good and gives a lot of more background story for Halloween and Halloween 2. It would be nice to read all of these someday. Uh, how do you feel is the legacy of Halloween 2 then? Let's see. Let's first unpack what we were supposed to unpack that we discussed in the earlier episode. 
Let's unpack why there's so much hate towards this movie from H1 fans. Go. I would say I, I, could, I could look at two suspects on, on the matter. Uh, first one is, well, just being a, being a typical fan, being a typical snob, and just hating every, every Halloween 2 simply on the virtue of it being a sequel. And the second point would be the kind of a the change in tone between the two movies. That That is kind of the argument that I, I have run into and the dislike of this being the point when the franchise finally sets itself in being a slasher movie franchise. Now not discussing Halloween 3, that's our own special case and We'll come back to that one, but essentially Halloween as a franchise, in here it sets, it becomes a slasher movie franchise, and and the fact that there is still there is added violence and added cruelty in Halloween too. I could kind of see that those are the points behind the hate. Let's see one of the snobs called Roger Ebert. I'm not a big fan of his reviews usually because he just goes off topic like 90% of his reviews. And this happens a lot in movie reviews and some article posts in newspapers. Who is this Finnish writer in some Finnish magazines and Helsinki Sanomat for a long time? Karin Hazard. She is terrible. Don't write. Stop writing right now, please. But to get to the point, <laughs> Roger Ebert gave this movie Halloween to two stars. So for the original one, he gave four stars. And he said that it's a little sad to witness a fall from greatness, and that's what we get in Halloween 2. And yada, yada, yada. Finally, one of the characters kills himself by slipping on the wet blood and hitting his head on the floor. Sooner or later, it had it had to happen. And uh, it is not a horror film, but a geek show. It is technically a sequel, but it doesn't even attempt to do justice to the original. Instead, it tries to outdo all of the other violent Halloween ripoffs of the last several years. The movie does not have the artistry or the imagination of the original, but it does have new technology and so on. Yeah, I kind of meet him halfway here. As we already talked about, it definitely has the artistry of the first movie, but some of the execution is just different. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to Roger Ebert, it's... Uh, <clears throat> I've always found the man kind of a minefield, mainly because he's such of a prominent figure e- even today even after his death in film criticism that he's almost sanctified in a, in a sanctified position and in that sense saying mean things about Roger Ebert is almost like writing your movie criticism death wish that's fine okay but then tell me this why are all the Writers who get off topic for most of their writing listed as the greatest reviewers and writers of all time. Roger Ebert is definitely one of them. 
I don't know. Maybe it's because I've written criticism in itself is not that highly regarded as any kind of a form of a written word. It's it's all it's usually seen. Or this is my take. Yeah, it's not like he's writing a scientific study. I get that, and it's very opinionated. But yeah, I just never could understand this kind of writing style, and it really just pisses me off. I I believe that it is because, and this is now me making a guess on other people's people's opinions and way of seeing written criticism. But there is the fact that criticism is not seen any high art of the written word. It's seen as a throwaway entertainment, something that you quickly go through, pick up a few points brought up to see if if this piece of entertainment, being it movie, video game or music or what, whatever, is something up your alley and then you see kind of a, the next point point you really take note on is the closing comments where the cri- uh, critic summarizes his opinions. Yeah, okay. Like, look at- yeah, like mm. usually when when you read, uh, uh, let's, let's say, a typical film cri- uh, criticism that you read, do you really pay that much attention to it? Or do you really take your time with it? No. Or do you just quickly go through it? And is it kind of a throwaway entertainment to you that just you quickly check to see if you should waste your money on this thing? No, I don't pay a lot of attention to it. And ironically, I guess so, because we are doing this podcast. But this is why, I, and this is exactly why I want some more technical and fact based stuff to be featured here because the opinions of a single person is usually not so interesting and it doesn't mean anything. And especially if you're going off topic in half of your text, then what the hell is the point? Okay, it's the throwaway entertainment. All right, so why is he so prominent and uh, important character in this field? I could, I probably could write more entertaining reviews than him, I have to say. Looking at just his review for Halloween, this is, maybe, I just I guess it just doesn't appeal to me at all, because yeah, maybe he's like the antithesis of what I want to see in a review: more cohesiveness, more sticking to the actual point, less what I did, what I ate for breakfast yesterday. And maybe that is exactly the reason why he is so prominent, because he. Precisely because he goes off topic so easily. And by going off topic, it gives him kind of the, yeah, it, it, it gives him the possibility to kind of work around and outside of the norms of how film criticism, in this case, film criticism is typically constructed and what it says. But this act of going off topic it can give him the opportunity to have kind of this more novel talking points and go through them. Or I would argue that it 
could be something that appeals to most people. I mean, there there can be through going off topic, you can kind of find this high class writing. Hitting that high class writing note would be harder. Sticking strictly to the confines of a review and simply the technical aspects of the film, which which is which is which are the points that you appreciate, but. The reading, reading public, and especially the uh, the part of audience that are on the boards and who give give out the journalism rewards and give you all this prestige, they, they are more in, inclined towards you know this this higher form of writing, and I would say that that is the thing that Ro- Roger Ebert. Good tapped on by going off topic in his reviews, and that is kind of the reason why he got so much credit for his reviews, and that way got his fame as a movie critic. Yeah, interesting to consider such a life where you get fame and fortune for just giving out your opinions. But yeah, it's yes. not. It's nothing to take away from the guy in that sense. It's just, yeah, it's how we, how we humans operate. Yeah. He's still the first, maybe even the only one. I, I don't know what's the score today, but at least the first, you know, movie critic to ever win a Pulitzer Prize, which is a big deal in America. But of course, you know. With that in mind, I too must confess that I have my axe to grind with Roger Ebert and I definitely don't see eye to eye with him yeah. in more, many things. And I even, I've always gotten this feel from Roger Ebert that he has few things that he really like and some things that he really despises in film. One of them being movies that and scenes that do not make you feel good. Huh. And nihilism and this really mean and harsh look on humanity. The image I've gotten is that from his reviews is that he, he can look past that in some cases. In some really standout films and movies that are masterpieces of cinema, there he can go with the fact that it can be a movie that does not make you feel good after seeing it. Yeah, since I now mentioned the personal opinions and how we should give focus also to something else, in my opinion, anyway, we could perhaps to try to discuss what are, without a doubt, without any of your own bias, what are the things that generally, as humans, why does Halloween to work as a scary movie? I could say that the hospital setting alone, everybody's in some sense afraid of the hospital. So that gives a character in itself to the movie. Added with this masked guy with the 
scalpel in his hand, no less. Music is more subjective, but of course it hits the notes that scare us. It would be nice to read more literature about people who actually have studied music and which kind of notes make you fear. But this movie works definitely differently than Halloween 1 in the sense that there's less suggested violence, less suggested horror. So maybe there's less that you fear in your imagination because it's more shown. But then again, Halloween 2 is a really dark movie, as in the lighting. So it gives enough room, perhaps, for you to form your imagination to grow in the shadows. Well, Halloween 2 is a dark movie in a lot of senses, not not just the lighting. It's also, it's kind of, it's look on humanity is also pretty dark. It taps into your unconscious mind. It also taps into the universal truths truths about your neighbor. And, you know, those things that you know to be true, but you just don't want to admit it to yourself. Case in point, the whole scene with the kid with the razor bread in his mouth. Lovely. Let's talk about Lee Lee Brackett, or the male characters a little bit. Lee Brackett does quite a shift in his personality or how he behaves in this film compared to the first one. In the first one, he was just pretty happily following what Sam Loomis is doing. And as soon as this film starts with him, then he's really grumpy and angry. Like, there's nothing there. And get that gun out of my face or something to that effect, and... His own goddamn doctor. You let him out. And you could say that he's really starting to uh, a little bit grind the gears of the audience because uh, Loomis did nothing. Oh, okay, granted, in the, when he says that you let him out in that scene, his daughter is dead, so it's understandable why he gets out of the movie. But it's really important for to get him into the opening scenes to tie the movie together. Yeah, but then again, in defense of Lee Braggett, uh, to, you know, against who could he even, you know, lash out in the film, if not Sam Loomis? I mm-hmm. mean, I I admit, uh, you're absolutely correct, Sam Loomis is the wrong tra- target here, because Loomis did not cause the events of Halloween and Halloween 2. You could make the argument that he did because he was hanging on the phone for too long and letting him escape with the car, but okay, continue. But Loomis is still the representative of the institution and the system that caused the events of Halloween and Halloween 2 by letting Michael, by not handling Michael Myers correctly and with enough care, and this way kind of enabling the whole escape. It's the, the hospital staff who who have made the decision that he is not a dangerous patient. Yeah, and I would even say that Brackett himself knows that, but it's a human kind of a impulse to find the first representative of the you know, of the of the party that is is fault 
Yep. It's wrong and it's it's sad and it's unfair towards Loomis, but Loomis still is psychiatrist. He is still the only one who represents the sanitarium and the mental health institution, which in the end are the ones involved for the events of the of Halloween one two. What did you think of Jimmy? He, I think, adds a little nice, soft, humorous, romantic moments to the movie where everything else is kind of gloomy and dark. And I think he was really handsome in this movie and would have been nice to, you know, have some kind of continuation for this character. Jimmy most definitely was nice and easy on the eyes enough so that you know you can immediately forget Ben Traver even if you haven't have not yet heard that the pastor burned alive just a few moments ago at the city center <laughs> oh yeah that whole burning of Ben Traver scene it is downright ridiculous that is also one scene that I would cut I on the other hand exactly like that scene Well, I, I get I get the adrenaline in the scene because so many things are happening in so short amount of time. By the way, some trivia. It's the same intersection where Tommy Doyle and Laurie Strode meet for the first time in the uh, Halloween one. Okay, yeah. Did not pick that one up. Yeah. It's good that we have huge fact-checking all the trivia here. Yeah. On this podcast, so we would be completely screwed. <laughs> But yeah, I I like like you said there is there is a lot of adrenaline in that scene. But as a whole, I think that that scene does quite good job in showcasing kind of the stress that everybody is going through. Because in that moment, unlike in previous film where Loomis precisely instructs Braggett not to release the information on Michael Myers so that they would not see Michael Myers in every goddamn street corner and would go around waving their guns. In that moment, Loomis himself completely forgets his own advice and his own carefulness. He immediately starts, you know, advancing ben, uh, towards Ben Tramer and getting his gun out. That's and is actually had the car not gone over Ben Tramer, Loomis most likely would have shot him <laughs> at that moment. And it also shows kind of the overall chaos that starts to erupt in Haddonfield as the night goes on. Yeah, for me, this is like the ultimate American movie moment where everything is super convenient and somebody is wielding a gun and explosions go off. Yeah, uh, to me, it's, uh, on the other hand, it once again shows those human elements behind the characters and kind of makes a point on how bad the things are escalating simply because there is this extremely hostile foreign element in Haddonfield 
in form of Michael Myers. It's funny to look for an explanation why the cars actually implode. The best explanation that I could find is that Ben Dramer is actually so full of alcohol at that point that they just go whoosh. Well, I, I always just counted that it was just self-combustion. <laughs> Dr. Loomis is yet again running the show even too much. So, I mean, immediately when Sheriff Braggett is out of the equation, there's Deputy Hunt and uh, Dr. Loomis is saying that meet me with the dentist in half an hour. And he just goes and walks out the scene. I mean, he's like uh, the... He's like a boss there. But that's, at least Deputy Hand is listening to Loomis more as he should. And the actor is Hunter von Leer. Maybe some Dutch background with this guy. Most of the scenes that are in the theatrical cut are okay. But I always kind of cringe during the same explosion scene when he says, One of them was Annie. And in the TV version, He's even putting even more emotion to that, where it's getting to be absolutely <laughs> insane. It's something to the effect of, one of them was Annie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, he was moonlighting as Batman. <laughs> This is a huge plot vehicle. Uh, tell me, Henrik, what is Michael Myers dropping all the time in this movie. It's some piece of metal everywhere in different rooms that he goes. And maybe he's trying to coax people to get into the same room so he can kill them. But apparently he's always having some kind of metal pipe or the same item always clanging to the floor or somewhere so that he can get them there. Have you noticed? Ding, ding, ding. I, I never... I have not noticed that outside of the security guard who gets lured in, you know, to the kill spot. And in that sense, uh, scene, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, there's this, there's this scene where one of the nurses goes to look for Mr. Garrett from the from his desk, but he's not there, only finds his cap, and then goes to one of the rooms because she hears something, and then she hears something again, and it's this metal thing, then she opens the door and says, Mr. Garrett? The second one where she uses the pipe or something metallic is in the beginning when she goes to do this random killing and the girl is on the phone. Boom! Something falls on the floor. Funny. What's the most absurd quote of this movie? I would say when Mrs. Alves says that, go tell Mr. Garrett that we're having trouble with the phones. And uh, then the nurse says, but he's at the other end of the hall. Oh my God, so far. Yeah, I, I would have to go with that one also as the most absurd quote of the movie. Yeah, what does that even mean? He's at the other end of the hall, Janet. Well, it could be a problem if, it, if it's a really long hospital. Must be really long then. Well, I, I can't be the judge here because I never saw the blueprints. Oh, yeah. We lack some research. We don't have the blueprints for the empty hospital. I knew I forgot checking out something for this episode. God, God damn. 
And there it was. This hospital has been taken down, by the way. But I believe that that the second hospital, some hospital is still there. It's super inaccessible. It's some kind of a private hospital. It's really hard to get there. Uh, It's just a long hallway. (laughs) Yeah, I watched some YouTube videos where where they were showing the shooting places of Halloween too. And they were with the car near the hospital and... Already there was some policemen chasing them in, in, in the courtyard and some other people, apparently a truck driver as well. And I don't know what the hell they're doing in this hospital, but it must be top secret. It's the ghost of Michael, ladies and gentlemen. It sounds like, a, like the kind of place that we should check out sometime. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to go to Pasadena, California. Let's go. Right after we actually sell this podcast for one million dollars to some poor sort. <laughs> Reality checks. Why can't Mr. Garrett call the sheriff station himself with the radio? Or it's not some kind of a two-way radio. Apparently I know very little about the technology of those days, but he, the, Mr. Garrett has the radio on his belt. He apparently cannot use that to contact anyone in the vicinity of the cops to contact the sheriff station. How How is that possible? Is there a jammer he's, also that he installed Michael Myers into the hospital? Well, he's so he's so driven that he's, since he's now inspecting strange noises in in creepy's basement, he's going to see that one through. He's not going to, you know, cut his shirts for that five seconds that it would, or 15 seconds it would take him for, you know, calling the sheriff's station. Yeah, or, you know, he could just drive himself to the sheriff's station. Or maybe, yeah, but he, maybe he's, he's, he has a secret plan to make Janet one of, one of his uh, assistant cops. Yeah, well, if he if he would drive himself to the sheriff's station, then he would have to call off his shirts of the basement. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you just can't do that, man. No. I, haven't you ever been self-destructively driven security guard in your life? Uh, I have to say no. Okay. Well, take it from the pro. Whenever you are in a weird-ass and halfway creepy hospital basement where crazed murderer is known to be walking somewhere around the town and police have not yet captured him and you hear strange noises coming from the basement. And further down the basement, you are currently checking whatever you do, do not call off the shirts at that point and leave the basement. You have to follow it through. You have to see where that noise is coming from. Yeah. Yeah, he's not into getting any backup. He's going to be the saving grace of the movie until, you know. Henrik, what would you improve in Halloween 2? Not much. I would make Rory Strode not so totally helpless when exiting the car. Yeah. And I would try to make some small changes on the characters. For, for example, Garrett could try to actually leave the basement he's searching 
and get the back up himself, god damn it. Yeah. Now that I think of it, wouldn't it make this movie more scary if the characters were actually all super likable, like Lori? You would really like care about them when they're dying. Yeah, well, that isn't that the case with all horror movies? Or uh, let's take this even further. Isn't that the case with all movies? Like the more likable the character, the more exciting the movie is because yeah. you feel for that character. So what? But that, what is the obsession to make them so unlikable in horror movies? <laughs> you mean unlikable or not characters at all? Both. I think they are still characters in this movie, but kind of obnoxious. There are, I, I would say, several reasons for this. Uh, first one, uh, which I would guess is the case in Halloween 2, is that Since there are so many characters, because they have to be, so Michael can axe them off. It also means that there's less time to flesh them out. So they, in, in case of Halloween 2, they kind of try to put one on one together in short amount of time, give them personality so that they, are, they would be real characters and not just faceless victim number 72. And when you try to rush that personal uh, personalization, it can easily become, uh, turn out so that the character feels obnoxious uh. or annoying. <clears throat> but, but of course, there is also the point that basically all the time the storyteller comes to his characters from the outside perspective and comes to the world outside perspective. Uh, John Carpenter was no longer a teenager when he wrote Halloween, which was film about teenagers getting stabbed. So he had kind of an outsider perspective on teenagers since and how they talk, how they act. And later on in Halloween 2, John Carpenter was not security guard or any kind of a hospital staff. So once again, he was an outsider. This forces the writer to use his own knowledge and then guesswork. And using those, try to combine a, a character that presents certain demographic, like, for example, a security guard. So he has seen a few, maybe he has seen a few security guards and then he knows what kind of person he is. He knows closely what kind of persons his friends and family are and he takes some human beats out of those and then the rest of Mr. Garrett is guesswork. And sometimes it works and sometimes it does not. And especially horror movies are in disadvantage that they also often deal with the darker sides of humanity and human condition, since that is the main fuel of horror. And when you start tapping into that way, I would argue that it's easy to get caught up with this, this is the nasty side of human point of view, and go with that. And in that sense, in in those cases, 
you can turn up with characters like in Cabin Fever, where they are all obnoxious assholes, and you just wait for them to die simply because you have st- looked too long at the negative aspects of human and people, and at that moment you are, you are so lost in the negative that you forget you forget to bring in also the good parts of human. I have just one thing to say about this. Amazing grace, come sit on my face. Don't make me cry, I need your pie. Yeah, well, how would you write? Somewhat sleazy, tries to be a teenager, but is actually too old for that already. Still tries to act cool yeah. to his teenager sidekick and is mainly driven by sexuality. I have no problem with that. It's, But it's just to make a point that they are purposefully made obnoxious. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not sure about purposefully. I, I, to play the devil's advocate here, I could say that maybe they were trying to, you know, combine several aspects and several things into one character and they just messed it up. What's the most exciting moment for you in this movie? Let me go first. The most exciting moment for me by far is the moment when the nurse goes back to the hospital, finds Lori, gets stabbed in her back, And you could argue one of the most exciting chase scenes in cinematic history begins. That scene is ultimate terror. It's beautifully executed. Fantastic. The timing of the music, timing of the cuts, the how it's shot from the low angle, following Michael when he's going through the stairs with his eyes totally forward and not looking down at the steps. There was a comment from Dick Warlock. He actually made some effort to make it look like that. He first went through the steps without the mask to count the steps, and then he did it with the mask. I love this sequence. This scene. I would say, or my pick would be the scene where Lori is hiding in the car at the parking lot. Because there you automatically you expect that Michael Myers will jump at the car at some point. And you yeah. are just waiting for the moment when the jump scare is going to happen. When the when, when Michael Myers will attack the car. Yeah, and there's uh, many yeah. obvious jump scares in this movie compared to the original. But uh, yeah, I'm totally with you with the car scene. It was terrifying as a... Uh, Kid, when you think of Halloween 2, what are you thinking as your first image in your mind? I would say it's, I don't know if it's the first image, but definitely one of them is the very end of the movie when Loomis has already exploded (laughs) and the hallway is on fire. And Lori is uh, hiding 
was there some kind of a trolley or something like that? And she's hiding behind by, behind it. It looks like some kind of a locker or a cabinet. Okay. You know, you, you are the one, once again, doing all the hard work. So, okay. So she's hiding behind the locker, a locker and... Then you see Michael Myers burning, just, you know, appearing amidst the flames and slowly starting walking towards her. Like that image is something that for, for me is Halloween too. The studio part that they created for this scene was apparently about the size of five car garages. And they set off the explosion and... It was unexpectedly huge, and it actually blew from its sockets all, also the door on the other end of the studio hall. So it was much more powerful than was expected. And the firewalk was done twice. I have no idea how they could have done it, done it twice. I'm pretty sure they didn't do the explosion twice. So, okay, the guy, Dick Warlock, I guess. Or maybe it's somebody else doing this fire scene. I'm not, no. It was Dick Warlock, yes, because he's talking about the suit catching this super hot fire and then the, his uh, zipper in his hands, it's burning his hand so much so that he had to stop that scene and then they took a retake. So uh, that that is a nice end for the original Halloween story. You can clearly see that that was where they were at. Finally trying to nail the coffin. Yeah. The, uh, let's be realistic. There's no returning from this. Obviously, Sam Loomis is dead as hell. But in Halloween 4, they, they're going to shrug it off. They don't even explain it. We'll get to that. But it's 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 funny. He's, uh, Michael Myers is just in a coma. And Sam Loomis just simply has some scar in his face. Yeah. But it's otherwise fine. But hey, movie magic. You couldn't have had the series continue without these characters. So That is the classical of filmmaking. Yeah, when I think of this movie, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is the scene in the Dr. Mixer's office when Dr. Mixer has the needle in the eye. And here is something that I will correct. And at the same time, I will piss off many Halloween fans and probably the actors themselves. If you look at the scene where Janet gets the needle in the eye, she doesn't get the needle in the eye. She no. Get, she gets yeah. the needle in the forehead. But yeah, you could say that the needle probably goes through the uh, through the head or the skull and to the eyeball inside the head. But no, in the you you cannot see that it's going to the eye. No, it's not happening. Sorry. The actor actually hit her head to the table. She was told to completely die after getting the needle to the eye or the forehead or the head. So it just dropped dead and hit the Dr. Mixter's desk and got like nine to 11 stitches to her head. The scene in the cafeteria, uh, she has stitches on her head, but you cannot see it. But yeah, that's a, that's an iconic scene. Even though it's kind of a repetition again of from the original, the Michael Myers approaching from the darkness, this time with the red lighting, and then pulling the needle. That is really, 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 really creepy. So well executed. Music, lighting, 
Orbit. Well, how's your overall feel of Halloween 2? I guess I could already ask if you would recommend Halloween 2. I would. I would definitely recommend Halloween 2. Same here. Same here. It's a damn good sequel. It showcases in many ways how sequels should be made. Yeah, construction-wise here, like how you could actually follow the previous film. I really appreciate the POV shots in this one. I am still astonished on how well they managed to pull off the whole it's still the same night thing. All in all, I see a lot of great, extremely great filmmaking in Halloween 2 and in a way that they showcase their talents only for one scene in this film and not repeat the tricks. For example, the Mrs. Allers death scene, which we already discussed, which is extremely filmatic and extremely artistic scene. In that scene, they showcase their talents artistic-wise and the talent of actually building that kind of a quite beautiful scene. And they only do it once, which is something that I tip my hat to the whole crew and this movie in, in general. Yeah. Any, any thoughts on music? I thought it was fantastic. Carpenter had some simple soundscapes that he had developed and then uh, Alan Howarth, uh, this pretty well-known musical talent, put his own layers on top of John Carpenter's and gave it the like final posture. It's really, I love it. Great soundtrack. Yeah, mu- music-wise, I really can't say that I noticed so much difference between Halloween 2 and Halloween 1. It's more electronic-driven. Okay, yeah, well, that's my tone deafness once again talking. Uh, Yeah, it's taking elements of the original and then having kind of a blast with it in Halloween 2. I would say that uh, at the zeitgeist of 1981 and what kind of slasher and horror films were produced at that time, I believe Halloween 2 is the best product that was possible to make. I understand the huge split in the reviewing of this movie. If you go check out the Rotten Tomatoes, the professional or so-called professional reviewers have have given this an overall score of, I believe it was uh, 31% out of 100. And the general moviegoers give it 60-something out of 100. So so yeah, I understand both, both sides. It's just a way of looking at it. I can understand that this could have gotten a pretty rough reviewing and a very split reviewing in in 1981 because then anything that was out at that point was Halloween 1, which was fantastic and changed the landscape of horror forever and so on. And Halloween 2 did it uh, quite differently. So there's lovers and haters. Uh, It was a success. It wasn't such a mind-blowing success as the first one. But the budget was two million and five hundred thousand, and it garnered something like twenty-five million in the box office. So yeah, Halloween three was greenlit, 
And this apparently is going to be our next headache. We have built a little bit of our online presence lately. So I'm going to be the guy at the end of the episode who is going to do some advertising. And I'm trying to not make it obnoxious. So you can find us on Facebook with the obvious the Flick Lab name. Also on Twitter, if that's your thing. Or YouTube, where we will also share the episodes, if you're into that. Channeling. And uh, something also is going to happen in Instagram. We have we have account there. Yeah, I'm I'm ready, you know, to revisit Halloween 3. I mean, the last time we did it, Halloween 3 was at on the table. It was a huge fight between us. <laughs> the infamous video at emails. Here we come again. Halloween 3? Uh, yeah, it, it was. But then there were two movies which you brought up. And, and let you me hear full for. One of them was like they already discussed age 20, but you also have few choice words for Halloween 3. Yeah, I guess I wasn't the biggest fan, even then. No, you definitely was the biggest fan. <laughs> I, I, I was the asshole who did not like it, and you you came after me, you know. <laughs> Extremely angry, like... <laughs> Didn't you understand? Don't you understand that they were trying to take the franchise to a new direction, and it was great, and <laughs> there was some real, real good scenes of horror, and it was nice that the movie was not about Michael Myers. And <laughs> oh dear, oh dear, how times change. So, so yeah, yeah. So th- those are the th- those are the feelings we are going to revisit. <laughs> On our next take on Halloween 3. No, I guess my child brain just couldn't go the additional leap and say that the movie is actually pretty terrible. Even though it tries something different and props for that, but it's too bad that the whole anthology thing didn't work for Halloween because there was nothing more to tell with Michael Myers and then it became the shit show that it became. Yeah, who knows? Maybe now that I revisit a little bit older, I will kind of see it in new light. Hey, at least we will be created by pretty much the same film group or the same kind of people. So atmospherically, it it will be similar. But yeah, that's all of the more of the night he came home for me. Yes. Wrapping up. Thanks a lot for joining us. And next time we will have some season of The Witch for you. Looking forward for that. Bye bye, or as the Polish say, Papa. See you on the next one.